It would not be an exaggeration to say today's guest is a force of nature. From the classroom to the podium to the negotiating table, Michigan Education Association President Paula Herbart has been a champion for children, education, and justice her entire life. The Speakeasy Podcast, real talk about leadership and sanity in the creative industry. I'm Jen Estel. And I'm Karen Steffel. Managing creativity in business? We probably have an opinion on that. No prohibitions. Clearly, we have cocktails. Welcome, Paula. We're so glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's exciting. Oh, we're honored. Um, So usually we start our, our episodes with a cocktail, and we have had your favorite cocktail featured this time. Why don't you tell us about it? Well, one of my favorite cocktails is a kamikaze, and oftentimes people do them as shooters or shots. It's um, two parts vodka to one part triple sec, a little bit of roses, lime juice to give it a little color, and I do uh, I drink it on the rocks. Fantastic. You know, I think the only time I've ever had a kamikaze before today is exactly what you said, is it a shooter, but they're really refreshing. They're delicious. A perfect summer drink. I feel like it could set you on your backside if you're not too careful. That has happened. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> That's what the ice is for, to slow you down a little bit, right? Exactly. Keep keep adding ice. Keep adding ice. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, let's talk a little bit about your history. You know, you're the president of the Michigan Education Association, but you didn't get here overnight. Let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, you said that you're a musician. You went to U of M with a music degree, correct? Yep. So how did that translate to the how did that translate to the classroom? Well, um, my parents are both educators. I have aunts and uncles who are educators. And so for me, there was a strong connection to going into public education. I had discovered my talent later than some people do. I mean, I was always playing the piano and singing, and my whole family is very musical. My father is an, was an outstanding musician, classical pianist and singer. And, um, but my dad was a pragmatist. So he's like, yes, you can go ahead and be a musician because you're a lovely singer and you could sing wherever you wanted, but get a teaching degree because you can always sing, but you can't always teach unless you have a certificate. So go and get that degree. And as I went through college and university, I really discovered that piece of my musicianship instilling and inspiring young people into music was something that really connected to me personally because of outstanding music educators in my life, in particular, my second grade music teacher, Elsie Ritzenhain, who comes in and out of my life throughout my entire career Um, from a young child into middle school. She moved to middle school to teach, and I had her again in middle school. And then in high school, she was a director of integrated arts. And then when I was in childcare, her son went to my childcare center. And then my kids sang in a choir concert, my students, that she was in charge of the banquet. So we just woven ourselves. And without Elsie Ritzenheim, I dare say, my second grade music teacher, I might not be a music teacher. That is an amazing story. It is amazing. So can I interject a really personal story really quick? Yes. My, my third grade teacher was a folk music artist. He made his own banjos. He gave us all nose flutes and jaw harps. And he started my love of music for performing. And my son at the very same grade in third grade, his music teacher encouraged him to try out for musicals. And she won 
uh, Michigan Music Educator of the Year last year. And so it's just like a really funny tie in, in terms of kind of all of our love of music. It is um, an extraordinarily powerful medium. Yeah, it absolutely is. So Jen. Yeah. Wow. I know. And it's it's really funny, Paula, because we always look for guests who are strong women and good leaders. And, you know, that's when we approached you, what we asked about. But your, there's, there's kind of two tracks I want to hear about from you. Number one, going from music educator to like, the most badass union boss in our state, which I think is kind of neat. And Thank you. Number three. <laughs> number two. I mean, it would be it would be remiss of us not to talk about not to bend your ear and get your insight about what's happening in education right now between a pandemic and a huge shift in civil rights. This is a huge moment of change. So you can either start with telling us your your tale of how you got to where you are, or you can. Tell us what's going on in Michigan these days. Um, I can do a little bit of both, I think. My mother was a union member and a strong union leader in her local when she was teaching. And so that was a part of my lexicon. That that dialogue was just a part of my growing up. And my father was a curriculum and HR director for a public school system. He taught in elementary school, but then became an administrator pretty soon after in the days when only men were administrators and not women. But my dad had the lovely um, event to have four daughters and then a son. So with all of us, he instilled in us um, the power of being a leader and not taking anything for granted or, or making an excuse for yourself because you are, quote unquote, a woman or allowing others to put us down as women. Um, he had us believe that we could do anything. My mother and father believed that. But as a curriculum director and administrator, and my mother as a union leader, dinner table conversation was crazy town. <laughs> and such a great learning experience, right? Just to get to hear it. And and we're a large Italian family. I'm one of five children. My sister, my sisters and brother, we all sat down six o'clock every night. My mother served the plates and we all sat around and dinner was an experience to converse, the art of conversation and defend your position and talk about what you feel passionately about. And my parents never, ever let us win an argument because they felt sorry for us or right. <laughs> right. It, it, it was always like you win an argument on your merits. They might agree or disagree. And you're going to know that too. And um, so that kind of defending your position, talking about what you know in your heart and speaking your truth has been an important part of my life all growing up. And my parents helped make that. Um, so that's kind of my union. So from the very first year I started teaching, I got involved in the union. Sure. And, um, and of course it hadn't, it wasn't a teeny little thing. You're like, Oh, I'll, you know, take notes or something. No, I was the assistant PAC chair, political action chairperson. Um, we were fighting back proposition a in, uh, 1993, it was going to come up in the 1994 election. Mm -hmm. And um, so in the fall of 92, 93, we knew in 92, we were going to be beating back uh, Prop A. And I went to my first rally in Lansing (laughs) 
two months into teaching and Fraser was great about inspiring me to do this. But when I got there, all of my mom's friends who hadn't retired yet that were involved in the union were there from their school district. And they're like, Paula, oh my gosh, it's so great to see your mom's probably so proud of you, blah, blah, blah. So it was, you know, an instant high of like getting positive reinforcement for engagement, for being engaged and being involved and being an advocate. So, you know, you just eat that up as a young educator. And then, um, and I would say that it moved from there and it waxed and waned, you know, depending on what was happening in my life. You know, when I was pregnant, I had my son and um, I was still teaching, but I drew away from some of the mo more overt roles in unions, um, but never too strayed too far away from it. And um, unions now are more important than ever when you're talking about the social fabric that we are weaving right now. You said something, uh, Jennifer, about uh, a moment, right? And what we're really talking about is making this moment become and be a movement. You know, that it isn't just now. It, it started in, as a movement when we first, you know, um, ended slavery. And then when we allowed, um, then with civil rights and then getting rid of Jim Crow laws and then moving. So the movement started so long ago, but, but we have allowed this churn of racism, this undercurrent of racism to remain powerful and potent under the surface. And now people are saying no more. Mm -hmm. You know, as a educator, I advocated for all my students, but especially for my students of color, not a white savior kind of, like I'm gonna help these poor children who have not, no, it was what's your truth, speak your voice, and if I agree with you, I'm backing you 100%. Um, and I'm not going to turn away from what I know to be good practice as an educator. So when we were talking about um, auditioning people, if we were having solos that were specifically um, known to be um, African-American performers or uh, Native American performers, I would pick students of color for those solos. And I would get pushback from my students who are white. Well, that's, you know, the I said, you have so many opportunities ahead of you. And this is not appropriate for you to be singing. It's not your story. It's not your path. Like this is for them to tell their stories. Everybody's telling your story. But our children of color need, need um, opportunities to tell their story. And champion's the wrong word because they can do it all by themselves. They don't need me. But they need somebody to open the door. Right. As an educator, you're the one who makes the space and clears the way so that somebody can do what they need to do, right? Right. And theoretically, in education, it's our job to help people thrive. Or your job, I should say. I'm not an educator. Um, and it sounds like you've practiced that for your entire career. I've tried to. My parents were people of immense integrity. 
Um, and it's hard sometimes to talk with people who, because of their mindset, will say that my decisions maybe are politically motivated or um, have a second agenda because it doesn't align with what they wanted me to do. Yeah. And, and you just have to stand in your space and go, but what I am doing is true and just. That's your story. That's your narrative. I'm not changing that. You know, I just have to lead by example and do what I believe is the right thing to do. And hopefully it will move somebody else to understand and know that about me. That's pretty fair. It's absolutely fair. And I think, you know, as many, you know, when you're reflect, you're telling us the story that's reflecting on your early career, and yet we're standing almost in the same moment in terms of education being a catalyst for social justice in that we've been waist deep in a pandemic where access to education and finishing a school year has been, you know, we've finished our school year, but, you know, we're looking towards the next school year. Talk us through um, kind of leading through uncertainty and how you've navigated that. Well, it is a challenge that I never expected to have um, this pandemic and um, or closing of right, but the closing of school buildings. Never in my lifetime did I envision that we would close school buildings for three months. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I want to be very clear when I talk about buildings because education is happening. We just weren't in those spaces. Um, and then trying to say to someone, remember when I used to say all those years ago, my good friend, David Hecker, who is the president of AFT Michigan, who always would say in a room, poverty matters, people access opportunity, poverty keeps that from happening for some students. And we cannot pretend that that it doesn't exist. And nothing's shown a brighter light on that than this pandemic. That opportunity and access was significantly limited in areas of high poverty. And um, we cannot turn our backs on that. We have been preaching this my entire career about what it's like to be poor and not have opportunities, what it's like to be you know, insecure with food and shelter. These are heavy, heavy loads. Now put a pandemic on that. And we're talking about babies, kindergartners. The thing about it too, that I think anybody who's been paying attention has probably noticed how much the entire community is depending on their public school. So we've got a bunch of parents out there that really don't know how to be educators and they're suddenly saddled with a task that they are not trained to do and they are not skilled at. We have families who are looking for food and they have to depend on their school district. So the school schools have to be incredibly agile in getting curriculum out, making sure people are fed, making sure people are healthy, they have access to what they need. And you had to do this all, like you said, the things you never thought you would have to do and you had to do it on a dime. Like a day. It's a lot. Or, or those folks who maybe lost their jobs, now they're home full time, still don't have internet access and are living in a vacuum and don't know how to, um, how to support. Right. Um, it is more clear to me than ever 
the priority that needs, needs to be placed on public school funding because of all of the things the two of you just mentioned. And as someone knee deep in the scenario, in those systems, I, I know that and I experienced that. It's one of those things where we don't have one child to spare. And so when you're talking about funding public schools, which is where some of our most fragile students, it's their only safe haven. Mm -hmm. We cannot turn our backs as a society on that. And to say, well, they could find a way or they could pull the stuff up by their bootstraps, all that nonsense that you hear. Well, if you don't have boots, there's no straps to pull. And we have to be thinking about students without straps. I had a young um, student who loved singing, incredible musician. And he was one of the boys that in sixth grade was floundering. Do I join middle school? Don't I, you know, will I be called names and all of that? And he stuck with it. And his mom worked odd shifts. And there was one February concert that I held. Brandon got there, rode his bike in February to the middle school to sing in the concert. And the concert, it, you know, it's dark. It's eight o'clock at night, 830 at night by the time we're done. So we put his bike in the pickup truck of a colleagues of mine, put Brandon in the car and drove him home. So he wasn't riding his bike home at eight o'clock at night in the middle of February. He wanted to be there. Um, his parent couldn't help him do that. Wasn't that she didn't want him to be there? She didn't have access when she was working to get him to and from. People don't have support sometimes. Um, and I think about Brandon, who's now a professional musician in Nashville, is the father of two lovely little children now. And I think about him all the time, you know, that Public schools saved Brandon, you know, and he had a great parent who loved him, but it's overwhelming. And in this pandemic, you know, we have people that are, you know, there's this saying you have to fulfill Maslow's before you can ever get to Bloom's, right? So Maslow's right. triangle of hierarchy of needs and then Bloom's taxonomy about how you learn and go forward we're basic right now. You know, kids are seeing family members die and um, they don't see their teachers anymore, their friends. And that's overwhelming. Um, but, but we'll get our, we're working our way through that. And the one question that I will be asking in all of the uh, groups that I'm a part of in the re-entering of school is let's think about before we make decisions, what we're going to be asking children and students to do in order to reopen school. What are we going to ask of them? It's not typical, you know, and it's going to be tough decisions. And so what I try and do is take a, do a lot of listening, which right now I'm not doing any listening. I'm like, blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> do a lot of listening so that when I'm at those tables, I can be their voice and talk about, no, Johnny, you can't hit Susie with your face mask. No, Gina, you're not allowed to put your ponytail through the holes of the loops. I'm sorry you sneezed in your mask and you had a bloody nose and now we have to find you a new mask. I mean, all of these things, 
everybody wants it to go back to normal, but what is going to be safe and healthy is what's the, what is the most important. And educators talk all the time about wanting to be the voice of education. We're the experts. Now educators have to take a step back and say, health professionals are the expert in this arena about the return to school. And while you want it to be normal and while you want it to be just like it was when you were back in school on April 12th or, I mean, March 12th or March 13th, it may not be. Why? Because the experts in the arena are asking us to do something different. Yeah. Well, the new normal has been, you know, it's become a new catchphrase, which has was used decades ago with <laughs> other social concerns. But we do all have a new normal for lack of a better, more apt description. And you're right. You know, our kids have been grieving the loss of their structure, their friend unit, their <laughs> just what it feels like to walk through their day. And it is going to be just a whole new set of, uh, of learning for everybody. Teachers have long taken on more roles than just educator. They've taken on social scientists and um and sometimes, uh, you know, maternal or paternal roles. And, and now, even though they can't play, health experts are going to have to be that conduit to make sure that learning continues to be a safe place, emotionally, physically, um, mentally. So talk to us a little bit about your um, Return to Learn Advisory Council. Well, the Return to Learn Advisory Council was put together by the governor. Um, there were over 1,500 applicants for this. Um, task force. There are approximately 25 of us. Um, and we are going to look through all of the scenarios that could occur, some which will allow us to go back into the buildings and be just like we were in March. Some may not be. Some may not open at all, depending on where their community is in the health and safety spectrum. And so it's going to be a fluid process this year as we um, reopen schools. I don't think the idea that we can all open up in late August, early September, and everyone's going to do the same exact thing is going to be viable. Having said that, it's going to be the task force job to, to recommend to the governor what they think are the best practices that need to be put in place to ensure everyone's health and safety. And, and what the task force decides, I will um, stand for. As we work through it, I will disagree when I think disagreement is necessary. I will speak for voices that I don't think maybe are being heard in the room. But once that task force comes out with whatever its recommendations are, I will stand behind it. And if I can't do that, then I would have to leave the task force before it came to conclusion. Um, I don't see that ever happening, but I just don't think it's good form to be a member of a task force or a member of any kind of group col collaboratively and through consensus come up with plans and then turn your back on it. That's not okay. It's not. Well, if, 
if you were leading in perfect times and, and the perfect answer was um, just within arm's length, that would be a very easy thing to do to just align and everybody would just go, they would nod and say, cool. And our children and teachers, we're not robots. No, we're not leading in perfect times. Um, in fact, the title of this episode is Fixing the Things That Matter. And that's not easy. It's not a simple puzzle where you've got 500 pieces and it's all done once all the pieces are together. It's completely imperfect. And it might be a complete puzzle when there's some pieces left because it's just, it's not, it's, it's a moving target. And you have to make the best decisions based on the information you have at the time of the decision. And then realize that that might be a rolling change. Right. And, you know, the reformers, the ed reformers, keep on saying we've lost a year and how are we going to measure their successes and all of that? Well, number one, we haven't lost a year. They were in physical buildings through Mar- through much of March, and then they continued to have opportunities for education with a certified educator until the end of the school year. The extent to which a family allows for that or provides for that or ensures that that's happening in the home can't be on the educator or the school system. It, it, it is, for better or worse, reliant on the network that child is living in. And we're all in that same space. It's funny, though, when you talk about testing, what you said earlier, that um, maybe the beginning of the school year will be rolling and it will look different for everybody. I thought that that was that could open up a whole conversation about testing and how programmatic testing maybe looks different for some kids than it does for others. And the acknowledgement as a society that not everyone will do the same thing at the same time based on the factors at hand is really quite enlightening. And I think that, that um, maybe people in our society can apply that to some of their other thinking about education, right? Well, there are, yes. And there are so many ways to measure success in student learning that, we are disallowed um, because our legislature has um, passed laws that make everything very prescriptive from the top down on how how we will evaluate a student's performance and an educator's performance based on their student's test scores. When there are so many hundreds of others of ways, because before Pearson, created the standardized test, teachers were assessing student work for decades. <laughs> and kids became geniuses and um, heads of empires and leaders of the free world. And they might have only taken two standardized tests in their whole lifetime. So it's not a predictor of success or not success. And this is an opportunity for us to look at that and say, maybe the millions of dollars that we're spending buying standardized testing units and booklets and papers is best spent on supports for students' social and emotional well-being. Maybe those millions or billions of dollars across the country are best spent raising teacher pay so that we get the smartest people to enter education. Now we have very, very smart educators, don't get me wrong, but we lose a lot of our intellectual property because we don't pay um, 
a living wage in some places, in some areas in our state, if you're an educator. There are many educators in the classroom in their first five years of teaching that are living below the poverty level and qualify for food stamps and get assisted living, which I'm so grateful that we have those social supports. But seriously, you've got somebody that's spent four to six years, and then they have to go on and get more education in order to maintain their certification. And we're paying them $32,000 a year. Mm. The math doesn't add up, does it? You know, I think, I, I think, that, you know, Jen started this conversation by saying that we're in a moment. So between um, the fight for civil rights, the ongoing fight for civil rights and pandemic, um, I don't know if education will ever be the same. But where we're standing right now, I'm not sure if any industry ought to be the same. Because if you're not innovating during this time, if you're not completely rethinking the way you're doing stuff, then how are you going to thrive on the other side? So I'm, I have to assume there's been some bright spots through this time. Well, the, the extent to which an educator has allowed to be creative in planning for student learning has been... I can only imagine as very freeing and exciting. The conundrum is we've taught them to obey because of the prescriptiveness that has been legislated in Michigan. And that is a heartbreak for me as someone who started out pre-standardized, pre-DFERS, pre-reform movement, um, that's very hard to see and watch happen. Um, and they're scared. Educators are scared. If I don't have a test, if I don't do this, how will they evaluate me? What? It isn't that they don't believe in testing or assessing or that they don't want to remediate those students who aren't doing well, but there's high stakes involved in them personally if students don't perform as well as someone else decides they should. And, and that's what where the scary part comes in for educators. They want to be creative in their classroom. They want to do things. But that is not encouraged by the curriculum that's being um, handed to them in many instances. Now, there are school districts that still have innovation. And I don't want to pay, paint too broad a stroke to say that teach, like, you know, earlier I used the word robotic or robots. They're not, but but they're scared sure. about if I take too many chances, will that be looked upon negatively if it doesn't succeed? When we know failure is as big a part of learning to be successful as anything. Well, or there's just not enough time in a day to get in something new. But any other bright spots in terms of what, this really challenging time of leadership has brought forth that you're that that gives you hope that you know fills your heart well just the activism around black lives matter and particularly in the education community mm -hmm. you know um the national education association passed a policy statement on um institutional racism and eradicating um in systems of systemic racism and institutional racism about four years ago. And I was on the NEA board of directors at the time. 
And so NEA has really been wanting to lead in this work and working toward that. So our students who are going into education are embracing this under this under student activism and all of that, but they're going to be the next teachers. So I am excited as hell to see this kind of activism in motion. And it's the kind of union that I want to lead that stands up and calls out racism. You know, MEA struggles even within its own organization with ensuring that we have a lot of different faces in the room. We're working hard at it. I I really want us to be looking at the ways in which we recruit people to make sure that we're recruiting people to get a variety of faces in our office buildings, to get a variety of faces out in the field and best represent our student population. And then MEA on the forefront of encouraging students of color to go into education so that no other student is maybe just like them who never saw a teacher of color, right? If you want to see teachers of color, people of color must become teachers. But we have to allow those gates to be open. We have to tell them and we'll listen to your story, what you need from us, what MEA should be, can be, must be in order to be truly inclusive because I do not share their experience in any way, shape, or form. It's all of those things that we cannot sit idly by and let other people do it for us. We must open the doors. We must um, herd the masses and say, we need you more than ever because there, no one will be able to share a story like you can share a story. And we have to be open to that and hear about how we screwed it up. I think being open to hearing and admitting that we screwed it up and um, hearing and admitting that there are other ways of doing it and other people have ideas. And it's interesting what, I've, what I'm hearing you say, like just listening to you now takes me back to your story about your um, dinner table with your family where you had those conversations and and sort of learned how to defend your position and have a good conversation. And earlier you also said, you know, educators are going to have to understand how to work with healthcare providers. And then the Black Lives Matter movement is doing what it's doing. And all of these things are coming together in such an interesting time and space. None of it is separate. None of it is unrelated. And so figuring out how all these things weave together to form actual change so that our children aren't on the same hamster wheel that we've been stuck on for a while is a really exciting time. I want to know if you could wave your magic wand, what it would look like afterward. Oh my gosh. Well, that we'd really look at equity in funding for public education. We don't have an equitable funding system and it leaves kids disadvantaged. And we have to address that. If, if we're not... But we cannot shy away from saying this is negatively impacting children of color. We have to say that. I have to say that as a white woman and say, and my white child will get less than what they've had, but not less than what they need. And until white mothers start sticking up for black mothers and brown mothers, 
we're going to still be on this churn. And um, we have to give voice to that and sit in the space of our discomfort and go, I was part of the problem for a long time. And how do I make it better? What do I have to do to show you that I want to do and be better? I would very much say that if every one of our listeners would ask themselves those questions and live by that advice, we'd be moving forward pretty well. Yeah, even inside and outside of the education space. I'm hopeful. Um, And, you know, equity is everything for women. You know, this is a women's uh, powerful women here in this podcast. I'm so excited. We can do this. We know what it will take. And we have to continue to not allow other people to fill the gap that has been made by this horrible pandemic. We have to fill it with what we know is right and not let somebody else put cement in there, you know, bad cement like the Michigan roads and um, but put good, good things in those gaps because there's a vacuum right now because we don't have schools open because we don't know what's going to happen health-wise because we have, in my opinion, I'm allowed to give my opinion on the podcast, right? We have a vacuum of leadership in the White House. It's, there's just nothing there. It's just sucking the life out of everything. And we have to make that not be so. So November's coming, right? It is. <laughs> How many days? 230, 225 or something. I'm just so happy we had you on the podcast today. I'm both feeling um, the gravity of the situation and some hopefulness for what we might get out of this moment in time. So um, that said, there's two things I'd ask of you, Paula. First of all, give me the quick pitch for why new teachers should become members of the MEA. Because there's nothing better than having 250 of your best friends or your colleagues speaking with one voice. MEA and unionism is all about collective action and collective voice. You're the determinant, the member is the determinant of what that voice should say, what those leaders should do, where we should move the organization. In MEA, we believe very much in our small d democracy. We speak and stand up for children. The Michigan Education Association in line with the National Education Association, fulfills the promise profoundly given to us to educate every child. We fulfilled that promise. And when you have 125,000 members saying together, yes, you can, yes, you will, yes, we must, that's powerful. You're a part of that movement. And you can help generate the kind of school that our students should have. MEA is the only one speaking for public education. Here, here. If I were a young educator right now, I would feel like I was in your shoes as a young educator, as your mother's colleagues were cheering you on as you stepped into a role of leadership. So 
Um, it's inspiring to speak with you. Thank you for your words. And thank you for being the best union boss for our children all over Michigan and, and having that, making sure that voice is heard. Thank you very much. It's my greatest honor to be the president of the Michigan Education Association, to represent educators in the classroom, the kitchen, on the buses, custodial maintenance workers, paraeducators. That is my greatest honor in my life. And I don't take it lightly. I got that. Paula, thank you for joining us. Do you want to take 10 more seconds and hear what we're talking about next time? You might be interested. I'd love it. Jen, here's the deal. You're never going to be ready. Oh, you might want to plan and prepare and wait until conditions are perfect. But at some point, you got to say, fuck it, I'm going for it anyway. And that is what we're talking about next time. See you then, everyone. Thanks.